Hi there and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Koye, and on the show today, I have the pleasure of interviewing for the first time a mother-daughter duo. I'll be chatting with Petwa Katiba, co-founder of Crest Foam, and Jocelyn Katiba, the managing director. We talk about executing an effective succession, bouncing back from loss, and what scaling means to a second-generation business in Uganda. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to African Business Stories, Ms. Petwa and Jocelyn. Welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. Awesome. This is the first time I'm interviewing two people at the same time, mother and daughter. So so this should be be really interesting. Um, Ms. Petwa, I think I'll start with you. Um, As um, as I was saying in the green room, Uganda was one of the few countries as as a child that I was familiar with. And this was because of Idi Amin. And I wonder what it was like, you know, um, living in, in, in those times in, in Uganda. Yeah, you are right. At that time, that during Idi Amin's regime, all over the world, everybody knew Uganda because of Idi Amin. Uh, it was right. not interesting during that time because it was a testing time. There was no peace in Uganda. The army was everywhere around Uganda, and people were really lived in fear. People lived in fear, and at that time, that's when people started going into exile. Many people went into exile because of that, because there was a lot of killing, a lot of fear. People were arrested, carried in the in the car boots. So it was not easy, and there was scarcity almost of every commodity. We used queue for sugar, and you get only one kilo of sugar. You go queue for soap, you get one bar of soap. Salt, everything. Transport was a disaster. They had put ropes on on lorries for for someone to climb and sit on a lorry, and that one would be the lucky one to get a, to get space. So it was not easy at all. Wow. Everybody lived on tension. So Uganda has come a long way since then. Yes, we have come a long way. That's awesome. And and is it true that there are parts of Uganda where there's snow? Not really. It's only on mountain ruins, only where it is very little. I don't know if it is still there now, but it used to be there, but very little. Oh, thank you for that little history lesson. So so I read that you trained as a midwife. Yes. So, so what kind of career opportunities were available to women um, in Uganda back in the day? Back in the day, people who were in Kampala, let's say, could get chances of going to good schools. But for us, we are born up country because we are not born in the city here. We are born up country. The chances of getting into good schools were rare. There were very few schools and priority was given to boys, not girls. Hmm. Most girls were trained to stay, to work home, to stay with their mothers, work in the kitchen, look after the, the, the family. But uh, for, for, for the few who were lucky, could go for training, like t- teaching, nursing, and, you know, those small, small courses. For me, I went into nursing because my aunt was a nurse. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, she said, okay, you join the nursing school and become a nurse. And, you know, at that time, there was no career guidance, proper career guidance. And we didn't know what is nursing, what is teaching, you know. <laughs> you could only see a nurse and you, you, you say, hey, nurse is smart. So I went to a, to a training, to that training. That's how I ended up being a midwife. Wow. So then, then your husband, were you married at the time when you trained as a nurse? No, I wasn't. I completed the nursing in, in 1970. Okay. I worked for one year, 1971. And by that time, there was change of government. That's when mm. it started. Um, I got married in 1972. And when I got married, I didn't go back to nursing. Oh, you didn't go back to nursing? No. Oh, okay. So then, then your, your husband and you started the business in 1984. Yes. That's when we started. We started, of course, construction, and uh, we we had little resources. And during that time, the instability increased. There was war. So it it took us time to to complete the construction. We completed the construction in 1986. In 1987, that's when we kicked off. That's when we started manufacturing. Okay, I understand that the, the company was started under a different name. Yes. That at, at first was Cassese Form. Okay, and why did you change the name to Crest Form? My husband had had wanted to start this factory in Cassese. There's a uh, place called Cassese in the Western region. Okay. But then he didn't succeed on getting land there to start that company. Okay. So we decided to start it in Kampala and changed the name Crest Form. Okay, that's interesting. So, so were you part of the business in the beginning? Did you work in the company in the beginning? Not directly. Okay. I was. I had shares in the business. We started it together, and uh, when we started um, making mattresses, I got the first outlet in town. Okay. I became a distributor when he was running the, the company himself. Okay. Okay, so I understand that in 1992, your husband passed away. And then you stepped in to run the company. Did you have any business experience at the time? Um, what, what made you decide to continue running the company um, when he died? And, and how did you manage? Yeah, that was a very challenging time. He passed on in May 1992 and I sat back and, and and thought of what to do to close the company to lose it all or to try and continue with the company my conscience told me that you know you try your best God is there and we try, I tried my best the unfortunate part we had a very big loan from the bank East African Bank and, you know, when one is sick, the mm. company almost came to a standstill. And the banks don't allow that. You know, they keep counting their days and their interest and interest on interest. So the loan became so big. That was one challenge, which was very big. The second challenge was how to convince the suppliers. Because... 
in most cases, our suppliers give credit and some days to pay. How to convince them to continue was not easy. But fortunately, I had uh, when my husband used to go abroad for procurement, for meeting the suppliers, we could go together. So most of them knew me. And uh, when they saw that I was very much interested and they showed them that really we can do it, they accepted to test me with credit. They, was, they started with small, they I paid back, then gave me, we continued like that. And uh, it continued. That's how we managed it. It was not easy, but uh, we managed. Wow, that's that's very interesting because that was you, you ran the company for twenty five years and yeah. kept it afloat. And that's 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 very commendable. That's very very commendable. So so at what point did you start thinking? I would like one of my children to take over. And did you have a plan B if your your none of your children wanted to take over the business? Well, when Jocelyn completed her studies, she started working abroad. And, and uh, in 2010, I called her. I said, Jocelyn, you have been working outside there. I hope you have gained enough experience. Why don't you come and join us here and work with us in Crestform? You know, that was not easy for her to change her career and come to join us in business. She said, okay, let me think about it. So from time to time, I could bring that right. to her. But she she was hesitant at first. And surprisingly, I had not called her in 2014. She called me and told me, you know what, ma'am? I said, no. I have decided to resign and come and work for Christform. I said, wow, I thanked God for that. So wow. in 2014, she came and joined us. Wow, that's that's awesome. So, so Jocelyn, <laughs> moving on to, to you, I read that you went to Warwick. So, some of my best friends went to Warwick. It's quite, quite a... a a, a great institution. Um, what did you study, and um, and yeah, what was life like um, at Warwick? So it was actually um, it was actually a fantastic time. Um, so I studied. You asked what course I took. I took Morse, which is a very unusual degree, especially when you're coming from Africa, where most people are going for the traditional engineering, accounting, lawyer kind of courses. Um, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. All I knew was I wanted to um, avoid uh, specializing so quickly and I wanted to have a bit more time uh, to consider different career paths. And so I looked for a course that um, talked to the the subjects that I enjoyed. So yeah, so Warwick was was, um, a fantastic experience for me, even though in the beginning it was really tough because of the cultural shock. Um, so I came from a country where we had very few foreigners and I had not been in a, in, a, in a place where there was any diversity of any sort other than people from different tribes in Uganda, but, but any sort of um, different races, I hadn't been exposed to that. So Warwick was, was really challenging in that, in that I, was, I found myself to be a minority for the first time um, and I had to you know, adjust to that. And then obviously... Things, simple things like the accents of teachers, you know, all that stuff was really, really tough for me. 
But I, I enjoyed the experience because it opened so many um, new opportunities for me in terms of uh, just, you know, getting exposed to different career paths that were not available in Uganda. So for the first time I had about investment banking, mm-hmm. I had about strategy consulting, you know, those were things that, you know, concepts that we were not exposed to. So so I enjoyed it because it was just a, a huge learning curve for me and, uh, and and I enjoyed meeting people from different parts of the world. I had I developed friendships from people from Nigeria, actually, um, places, uh, other people from, you know, Kenya, etc. And so it was just, it was a great time for me. Right. So, so you went on from there to, did you go to Cambridge first before Harvard? Yes, I did. So I went straight after Warwick to Cambridge because uh, I decided, you know, my mom, you know, being traditional parents, you're like, okay, you're studying now, just, you know, finish what you started. Let's go for the master's. So I went, pursued a master's in management studies at Cambridge. And then while I was there, um, obviously at this point now, you really have to start thinking about where to after, right? right? So I started around what career options were available to me um, and obviously got swept up by what was being put on the table. We were being um, uh, exposed to investment banks. I spent some time at Goldman Sachs uh, just, you know, really considering that as a, as a real opportunity because it sounded really exciting and, and, and fast-paced and I, I just thought, wow, and a lot of money, right? right. So as did a career at Goldman Sachs, actually interviewed and got uh, an op- a, a position there. And then I got exposed to strategy consulting. Um, so Bain and company came onto campus. And, and, and again, you know, I got swept up in that one as well. Um, and then I realized that I was actually just a better fit hmm. for strategy consulting. It just, you know, to me, I had already decided that I wanted to pursue a career in business management. And so strategy consulting sounded like it would be a great foundation uh, to help me really be a very seasoned business manager because of the analytical skills that they're able to impart on you. So I thought, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and so from Cambridge, I moved into strategy consulting as a career. Interesting. So how long were you with Bain and Co for? So I actually did two stints with Bain. I started out uh, in Johannesburg in 2000. And I was an associate consultant at the time, and I did that for nearly two years. Um, and then later on, after business school, I joined the Chicago office for also about two years. So I have those two stories um, and in different positions, one very junior and the other one in a more senior position. So so at what point is this? Where, where are you in 2010 when your mom starts, you know, sowing the seed of coming back? Where are you in, in uh, at this point? So in 2010, I'm sort of actually at that point in limbo because I moved back um, to the continent in 2000 and uh, I believe it was 2009. And I actually did a, a couple of months in um, in Kampala, but I was actually really passing through because I wanted to move back to South Africa. South Africa had actually become home to me because I feel like, you know, the, that place where you start your career, sometimes when you're a young person, you get your financial freedom of sorts. Uh, and South Africa represented that for me. So when I came back uh, to the continent in 2009, 2010, I, moved, I was already, you know, transiting onto South Africa and I'd actually interviewed and gotten opportunities. So because I think my mom saw that I was, you know, sort of moving around a bit. So she decided to actually ask me, why don't you just focus? Why don't you come and, and settle? You've already had a few um, different work experiences. Mm. This could be a good time for you to actually put your roots down 
and really start, you know, developing uh, something here with with her. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so 10 I was in limbo, but um, I was definitely transitioning to South Africa. And then I moved on to South Africa for four years, okay. uh, up until 2014, yeah. Okay, so your mom described getting this surprise call from you saying, I'm, I'm going to come do this. So, so what was happening with you? And what brought okay. you to the point where you decided, I'm going to go and, and yeah. run my family business? So I was actually at Cummins and I was um, part of the leadership team uh, heading strategy and business development. Um, you know, a very fantastic opportunity because, you know, I had done a lot of projects on the continent, spent a year actually in Nigeria, um, helping Cummins as they exited out of a joint venture. Um, and then also, you know, working on different projects, both in East Africa, Central Africa, Southern Africa in Angola, um, North Africa, including Egypt. Uh, and I'd done so many different um, due diligence uh, projects, market entry strategies, and, and I'd seen and become very exposed to doing business on the continent. And one of the things that actually stood out for me was an experience uh, or, or, or a company that I, I got to know pretty well in Kenya, Khan General, because Cummins decided to do a joint venture with them. And um, the owner of Khan General, uh, VJ, when I listened to his story, when we first went out there um, and we were still you know, trying to do the due diligence work, he, the way he described, you know, the, the the path that his family business, because he was second generation, his father had started the business, and then he had taken the business through um, a, a, a really entirely different path from what his father had left behind, which was just, you know, mainly trading and now had gone into um, becoming more service oriented business, still representing global brands, but actually, you know, doing a lot more in terms of um, scale and had actually been able to list the company even on the Nairobi Stock Exchange. So just listening to VJ talk about what he had taken the family business through, I, I, I sat back and I thought to myself, I need to do something great like this, you know. Mm. And, and I, I really honestly, for me, that was my aha moment. VJ actually, uh, and he doesn't even know this, but to me, he represented myself. I felt... I want to be VJ when I am his age right. and talking about all these things that he's been able to accomplish. And so he, I really got um, motivated to, to be bold. Um, I think that was the, one of the biggest things. And to start to believe that I could actually dream a lot bigger than I had even allowed myself to dream. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think just sitting in, there, in, in those meeting rooms, I also realized I could continue being an employee for the rest of my life and, and pursue a really good career at Cummins. I actually had been very fortunate. My bosses, you know, really liked me. I had very good sponsors within mm-hmm. the organization. But I also felt, you know, that I would never feel complete if I did not um, give back to the family uh, and, and actually, you know, bring everything that I had learned and try to just make a real fundamental difference right. at home. And and for me, that was just really, that was my driving force. I, I just got to that point in my life where I thought, I need to do this. And, and this is probably what I have been preparing for all this time. And yes, yeah, so that's how I just got to that point. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about succession, you know, succession planning and, you know, executing a, a smooth succession. 
So, so was mm-hmm. this succession a smooth succession? Was it, I came back, you know, oh, here you go, my daughter, here, here's your, your family business. And you're like, was that, was that smooth? No, 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 it was not. Actually, I, I like to tell people that in a way I started a coup. Wow. Uh, I think that's how I see it. <laughs> Uh, the truth is, my mom had been quoting me and asking me to come home. She really wanted me to come join the family business. And I think in her mind, if she's honest with herself, what she envisioned was I would come home, you know, I would shadow her for a while, and she would obviously continue running things, and I would be there supporting. And then maybe one day at some point, she would just hand it over to me, right? I think that really was what what, Is this what you were thinking? You're here. You can speak. Is this, is this what you were thinking? I don't know why she's reading my mind. <laughs> I don't think I was thinking like that. For me, I wanted her to come and really relieve me because the work was too much. Too much that it had come to my maximum. <laughs> I wanted real, real help from her. But the reason I say this is, I'll tell you why. Okay. So when I came home, um, so my mom, you know, puts me in the general manager's office and she's got the managing director's office, which is, <laughs> to be honest, very, very nice and big. And she had really designed this office for herself. Huh? Uh, it had, It's actually the only office that has AC in our office block, right? Just <laughs> a very clear sense of what, what this looks like. And so... You know, it became confusing to people because, you know, they, she had already been running the business 20 plus years and everyone was 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 aware that Mrs. Kateva was the decision maker, the decision maker of the factory. So when she remained in her office, uh, it, it was very difficult for me to, you know, get people's attention. And I think they struggled with who do we listen to at the end of the day? You know, Madame Kateva, you know, has been running the show for 20 so years. So clearly the last decision lies with her. And so it was really hard in, in, in the, the, you know, decide, illustrating to people the scope of work. You know, this is what I do and this is what she does. And, and I think after a couple of months, uh, we realized, at least I realized, that um, it was going to be very difficult for me to effect the changes that I, I felt were crucial. And, and she was also struggling with the change um, that I was trying to bring to the table. Um, so then when I say I, I took on a coup, I actually gave her notice. Um, I literally went to her assistant and, and told her that by Feb 1st, um, Mrs. Kateva's um, personal items had to be moved to the general manager's office. Wow. And my items had to be moved into my office. Wow. Yes. I had already printed uh, managing director um, uh, <laughs> cards. And, and I literally took on the position. Yes, because... You know, I, I felt that, you know, she wanted me to to take charge, but at the same time, she wanted to hold the position. So it was becoming a little bit confusing. So I told her, you know, we need to make sure that this is very clear. And one of the things that needs to happen, I need to sit in that chair. Right. That in itself, you know, needs to become, you know, very symbolic to everyone that that is where the MD sits and that is the new, um, you know, decision maker going forward. Wow. Yeah, so you was a coup. <laughs> that was a coup. And and I, I heard also about your board. Tell me what you did with your, your, your board. Or was it your management team? Yes. So both. Um so what what one of the things uh, I realized when I came back was that we had very poor corporate governance. Mm-hmm. And uh we had a board in name. There were no board meetings, there were no 
minutes, of course, because if there are no board meetings, there are no minutes. And then there was just, everything was very informal. The entire management style was informal. Um, a lot of things were not documented, no manuals, no SOPs or standard operating procedures. Everyone was just sort of, you know, informally um, interacting. They didn't have, they had very few emails within the office, a lot of communication. Uh, if they, they would write a memo and then it would get passed around. It was just, it was to me, you know, completely alien to me and, and actually what I would consider very stone age in, in sort of business practice. Um, and so when I, one of the first things that I did when I, I took on the MD position was to, to, to get the board to have a board meeting so that we could then start, you know, so that I could share with them what my findings had been, where I felt the gaps were. And then, of course, you know, come up uh, and agree with the board, some sort of uh, action plan on how we were going to start the journey to formalize. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started that process um, actually late um, 2014. And then in, in 2015, we, we sort of built on that. Um, but it was tough because, you know, when you're starting, when you're trying to bring change, especially to a team that had been around, because not only my, my mom had been around for over two decades, but also the management team, many of the, the leaders had been there from inception. Mm. And so, you know, when you're trying to bring change to them, the, you know, first of all, it's difficult for them to understand why they should care about it. Like, what's the true value right. in doing things differently? And then secondly, I guess people struggled to see me as an adult because, you know, I had two uncles that were managing the business alongside my mom. And I think they had seen me since I was in diapers, literally. And so it was really hard for them to really understand and, and really feel that they were going to take orders, literally, from right. this young girl. So I think there was a lot of, of, of that, that difficulty and opposition or passive energy that I kept feeling. Um, and so I, I relied on the board to help me effect a lot of these changes. Um, and I, and I, I, I remember actually our, our chairman passed on last November, mm. but he became my greatest confidant, my greatest coach, because um, he was a seasoned banker and, and he had led, you know, one of the biggest development banks in the region for a couple of years. So he, he understood the need to formalize and why it was important to have good corporate governance. Mm. And so, you know, so I started that journey with him and then used because my mom, you know, really, really trusted him and, and respected him. So I knew that she, he would be the greatest influencer for me with my mom. And so I would spend time with him and then we would come together to the board and say, OK, this is how we're going to do this different. Right. Um, so corporate governance for me was was really one of the biggest things that I, I really feel very proud that I started that journey. Mm. We still have a long way to go. Um, but at least uh, we've been able to achieve quite a lot because of it. Wow, that's awesome. So so how was your relationship? I mean, how was your rela personal relationship, you know, during these early days of the the coup? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want my mom to, to share, to chip in on this one. How would you describe our relationship during those days? With the members of staff? Or? No, with me and you, our okay. relationship, personal. Well, it was okay. It was okay, real. There was no problem. There was no problem. You see, one of the things that I have been blessed with, I think, is that in, in trueness, I actually always feel that my mom truly trusted me. She trusted the decisions that I was making. Some of them were very difficult for her. I think but one of the things that she struggled with was the speed at which I was making, I was bringing change on the table. Right. I think the speed, you know, definitely made her somewhat uncomfortable. 
Um, but I, like I mentioned, what I tried to do once I realized that she was struggling with certain concepts, I then decided to go through, you know, the, the board chair, right. um, who was someone that she had relied on and had actually helped us significantly that time when we had um, the, the big debt back in the, in the day and when we had to, you know, negotiate a settlement with a bank. So she relied very, she, she relied or trusted him a lot. And if he said something, then she was ready to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think for me, when I came to realize that my mom truly, truly held this gentleman in, in high esteem, I spent a lot of time, you know, working through him right. and, and making sure to use him to, as my voice, uh, as sort of an added voice. Yeah, yeah. That's And cool. that helped us avoid a lot of uh, energy that would have been otherwise difficult. That's very interesting. So, so you, you, you come in in 2015 and I understand that you had a baptism of fire. So, so talk to us about, about that. That was, I can tell you that, you know, there are so many challenges that I know business leaders (laughs) will face, including what we're going through today, but I can assure you, um, Something so public like that um, is so, so painful. And and I think for us, the biggest, biggest painful point was that we lost lives. We lost six of our employees. That is something that in our history will always be a scar. Because, you know, as employers, you want people to go home better than they came in through the door. You don't want to take people to take back remains to people's homes. That is just not what business is about. So for us, I think that was, you know, a moment that um, really brought us to our knees. I remember actually, you know, the the specific time when we were informed because my mother actually was um, checking into um, hospital for total knee replacement. At the time that the accident uh, occurred, we were both in Johannesburg in South Africa. And so when they told us, we didn't know, of course, the extent at the time. And so we, we rushed out of hospital, got into the first plane back to Kampala, uh, to Entebbe. And I, I remember um, on landing, that's when, they, of course, they had now already determined um, the extent of the uh, impact of the fire. And, and so they informed us that, you know, six lives had been lost. And, you know, my mom didn't cry until that point because, you know, to her, physical assets can be replaced. You know, we had, we were insured. We, we, we knew we had, you know, we had paid for our insurance covers. We weren't worried about that. But when we heard that we had lost lives, that is something that you cannot put back. You know, you cannot, you know, do anything about that for those families. So for us, that actually was, was tremendously difficult. Um, so we lost six so lives, how, yeah. Yeah, how did you how did you because this is your you're literally, you know, fresh into the role yeah. and you're leading this business and then you suffered this tragic loss yeah. of of staff and of of um assets. Yeah. So how did you handle that situation? I, I think you know, I we both immediately realized that we needed to to become strong. I think both of us, you know, when we lost my late father, and I'll bring this back to him, uh, we were both young. I mean, my mom was 41. I was 15 when my father passed on. And I like to tell people that our resilience started to get built back then. Because, you know, we were, you know, when you suffer a devastating blow when you're fairly young, you'll be amazed at what it does to you uh, as a person. So I think 
we, we understood very quickly that we needed to get into the gear of being strong because we had, we had 130 employees um, in Toto at that time. And we have to, you know, they were all panicked. You know, people worried about will they have a job tomorrow? Because literally our entire factory was gutted. We had um, wow. 5,000 square meters lost uh, worth of, of building space. Um, we lost machines. Uh, we, I mean, it was it was just terrible. We only remained with 1,000 square meters of production area out of, you know, that totality of, of, of nearly 6,000. So, it, it was, wow. you know, we, we quickly saw the panic. I mean, my uncles were crying. Everybody was devastated. And I think I just, you know, realized that I needed to become strong. I just needed to get into into gear. So I made sure never to cry in public. That was very important to me. I needed to show the group that we could actually pull through. So I focused on what we could do as opposed to what we had lost. Um, and then I quickly started, you know, trying to put together some sort of action plan and, 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 align, and assign people to different tasks. But of course, the unfortunate thing in, in, in a disaster is that whatever plans you come up with, the next morning, a new plan has to be developed because other people are in, intervening. So there was just so much that was in flux. And, you know, we just pulled together. The other thing I would say is that we got a lot of support. I think hmm. the truth is, you know, no person that has ever done anything that is good or great can actually say they've done it alone. So we were right. really fortunate that people rallied around us. I had support from folks who helped us on public relations, to people helping us through, um, you know, our insurance claims, our, our brokers were really, you know, all out there working exceptionally hard. Our own team, uh, our finance team quickly, you know, came together and, and found a place where they could start to size the, the extent of the damage or, or loss. So, you know, people actually started to rally. And I think that also gave us extra, you know, energy and, and, and allowed us to keep pushing. Um, but the truth is, if we did not have the insurance policy that we had, it would have been a lot harder. So there were some good mm -hmm. things that we had done that gave us hope that we could rebuild, we could start somewhere. Um, so because we knew we had an insurance cover, and our insurer, UAP, which is part of Old Mutual, actually gave us um, quickly a, a big um, uh, chunk of money that enabled us to actually kickstart the process of rebuilding uh, I think all of those things coming together that just kept giving us the um, the impetus or the energy to keep moving forward. Um, but yeah, I think it was, you know, I, I will say that when I look back, um, I, I actually felt like I, I became a different person, you know, and I think right. in a way, I just understood that everyone was relying on me, on my mom, and we needed to be strong. There was no time to waste. So we just got on with it, basically. That's awesome. So where is Crestform today? So Crestform today, uh, we've built back what we lost. We thank God for that. Um, we were able to put back and improve, you know, that facility so that we would not have the same kind of accident again. Um, we've also been able to add to our machinery. Um, we've now, you know, started thinking about extending our production line. Um, and that is something that we're preparing for. Uh, we, we, we do, of course, need to add quite a bit to the, the working capital to support that. Um, but some of the exciting things for us have been, you know, the market, you know, we, 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 I think at that time we didn't know how the market would take us back because we went offline for six weeks, right? But when we came back, the market received us with open arms. So we've been able to continue building on that. 
Um, and then, you know, we've, we've extended our presence uh, countrywide. We used to rely heavily on dealers. We're also now, you know, adding or supplementing that with our direct presence. So I would say that we are in a strong position. We are still rebuilding ourselves. Uh, there's still definitely a lot of work um, and a lot of areas for improvement. But at least, you know, we, we have a lot of hope that um, tomorrow will look a lot brighter than today. That's awesome. So, so what is what has the impact of COVID been on on your business? Because no one, that's that's what everyone's talking about now. And and I wonder what what it's like in the manufacturing space. Yes, I mean it's it's been a very um, interesting one. Of course, uh, in April, the the government of Uganda, actually the president, um, put Uganda in 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 a in a, lo- in a lockdown, lockdown position, and so we had. Uh, you know, no way of selling product. Of course, everyone, you know, needed to be extra careful. So all the shops were closed, all the arcades were closed. And April was really, really a very difficult month. Uh, We saw our sales plummet. And of course, our production went down because of that. Um, We then went into uh, an easing of the lockdown in May. Um, and now we're still in a partial lockdown for certain, you know, business areas, but for the most part, Uganda is fairly open, except for obviously the, uh, the flights, uh, and then obviously in certain sectors, especially in the hospitality sectors, there are some areas that are, are not open. And, and what that has enabled us to do is to, to start the recovery process. Um, so we've been lucky as a, as a form sector or mattress manufacturing sector in that, you know, the market actually has been able to continue consuming our product. We were actually very surprised because we didn't know um, coming out of, you know, this lockdown, people hadn't earned money for over six weeks, what that would actually translate into around their consumption habits. Um, But interestingly, we've actually been able to have a reasonable performance. And I think this has been felt across the entire sector. I do actually chair the form sector. For Uganda. Um, so the form sector has done, you know, better than expected, I would say. Um, so we're, we're just, you know, in that process of just, you know, getting on with it. The, the concern, of course, like any business, is that it is still a period of great uncertainty. You know, while we might have had a few months of decent performance, it's not clear to us what the future looks like. You know, we don't know when the vaccine will come. We don't know if there will be another lockdown because maybe the the number of cases increases, right. the number of deaths increases exponentially. So I think we continue to be in um, in a situation where it's difficult to plan. And I think that's always the hardest thing because when you can't plan, then that means all your business projections really don't mean anything. I think we've had, you know, bigger companies refusing to even give a forecast for this year. Um, and the same is true for us. It's, it's really hard for us to say what will 2020 truly look like because it's just difficult to focus. Um, and so when you can't plan, you, you have to be very cautious on many things. So everything around cash flow management, working capital, that stuff, I think we're constantly paying attention to it. But yes, yeah, so, so far, not too bad, but very worried about the future, for sure. Hmm. I know, I know. And um, in terms of business growth yeah. and scaling, you know, I mean, everyone talks about how Africa has the largest number of female entrepreneurs in the world, you know, but a lot of these businesses are small and micro, you know, and scaling is a big issue for for entrepreneurs. 
you know, and when people think scale, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think about scaling in terms of scaling across Uganda or do you think about markets outside mm-hmm. of Uganda? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think for us, definitely scaling is both geographic and product uh, as well. Okay. Um, definitely, we we have been uh, fortunate to actually operate in markets outside of Uganda. Our product has okay. been sold in the past in countries like South Sudan when the civil war wasn't so bad as it is today. Um, and then also the Eastern DRC has been a very good market for us uh, over the last couple of years. So definitely, um, when we think about scaling, we definitely want to think having a bigger geographical footprint. Um, and you're right. I think that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, uh, usually uh, are in big numbers in the small scale or micro level, as opposed to sort of your medium then to large scale players. And, but one of the things that I learned, and I, I, I brought it back home when I told my mom, it goes back to that story of VJ. Sometimes, you know, it's all about, you know, how you position yourself to do great things. And one of the things that I learned from VJ, which is why I came back and, and focused a lot on starting the journey on corporate governance. You have to get, um, you know, people to to truly trust your business, um, especially around, you know, if you're going to put numbers in front of a financial institution or a business partner, people need to be able to go with confidence and know, okay, what you're presenting to me is truly the picture that is there. And mm. so I think, and that can only happen when you start to formalize the business. But for some people, people struggle with, oh my God, you know, if I formalize, it will be expensive to me in every sense of what that might mean. Uh, and other people probably are scared of, you know, the tax implications. Now the taxman will know me and what does that actually look like for me? Um, but but what people don't realize is is really looking at, at, at the, the, the picture in totality in terms of what are you going to truly gain by doing it? And what are you leaving mm. on the table when you don't do it? And one of the things we learned at Crestform is for the longest time, uh, we didn't have a lot of competition in the form sector. And so we could, you know, be comfortable the size we were because, you know, it was what it was. But now we have seven, we're seven big players, or not big, but at least medium players in the form sector, medium to large, right? Um, and large being, you know, companies that exceed $10 million in, uh, in turnover per annum. And so for us, that's large in Uganda. Um, so, so when you um, have seven players that are quite sizable, you do not have the um you you cannot you know say oh it's okay to be small because when you're small you become irrelevant in that sector so now you're actually forced to become big to survive you know if you're not in top three position you're actually irrelevant and so i think you know depending on the space you're playing in the reality is there comes a time where size truly matters you know and so if you're going to get into a business and you want it to you know be there for years to come you have to understand at some point that size matters and you have to have that ambition. Uh, but if it's right. just that you want to do something so you can pay fees for kids for a couple of years, that's a different story. But the minute right. you want it to be something that will you know, transcend years, you have to pursue scale. Right, right. That brings us to the the other challenge of pursuing scale, access to finance, access to knowledge and information. You know, what does that look like in Uganda for for businesses? I know that you sit on on a number of boards and um, you you advise a number of companies in different sectors. You know, like you said, you're with the Manufacturers Association. Mm. 
you sit on boards for banks and oil companies. Yeah. So what's the business environment like for entrepreneurs in Uganda? And, you know, also if you can talk about that whole access to finance, that would be great. Okay. So firstly, it's evolving and evolving really fast because, you know, Uganda is relatively small when you think about all the 52 countries on the continent, right? Um, right. And when I came back, I was actually very impressed to see how, you know, the, the financial um, sector had actually evolved. So there's a lot of, um, you know, the traditional, I need uh, a loan to support my business, so I go to a commercial bank. That's there, it has always been, and it's still there. There's also, um, you know, folks that have been able to go to, you know, institutions such as the IFC and actually borrowed big sums of money to support their businesses. Then there's also the private equity um, you know, sector that is actually growing, fairly young, but growing, and it's cutting across all sectors, whether it's the banking sector, you find them in there, you find them in the pharmaceutical sector, they're in actually the phone sector as well. Um, right. And then, you you know, they're just cutting across, you know, different, um, in different areas. And so it is evolving. There's also the, the stock market. We've had a few IPOs. We had our first uh, private company, uh, a big pharmaceutical company do an IPO last year. And so there's a lot of change that is happening and a lot of options. But again, uh, like I mentioned, you know, if you want to access some of these, you know, exciting, interesting opportunities, then you have to position your company to be considered for them. And so, you know, because I was, you know, able to see that trend um, when I was at Cummins, because Cummins actually had a couple of joint venture opportunities on the continent. I realized, okay, you know, when we were doing through the due diligence, what is important to a partner on the other side? If they're looking to invest, what are some of the things, what are the questions they ask? What do they want to see? What do they consider good? And so, you know, for companies that are, you know, in Uganda, such as ourselves, you know, we have to actually be strategic in the choices that we are making so that tomorrow, we want to have certain options available to us, then we have checked off those boxes. So the, the, the mm. chapter is there. It is, you know, still not in big numbers that we would like it to be. That is true because in the development bank side, you know, it's not as capitalized as we would like. Um, so there's a lot of competition for funds. Um, and then capital is also expensive, especially in the traditional um, settings, but even in the PE settings, because Uganda is still considered fairly um I would call it high risk, right? And so you find that people are asking for very high returns, very high interest rates. So that is always a challenge, I think, for us. And I think that will remain for some time. But there are some folks that have been able to, you know, get some good deals. And 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 again, you know, when you look back and really understand their journey, there are quite a few strategic choices they've made, especially around corporate governance especially around having um, good um, stakeholders, like very good uh, audit firms auditing their books and just really making sure that, you know, they are compliant with all regulations, taxes, environment, etc. So the, the access is there, but if you want to have full access to everything that is coming on board, there are some right. choices that entrepreneurs have to make and make them quick. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. So my, my final question, Ms. Yeah. Um, Pratwa and uh, Jocelyn, is what's next? What's next for you personally and what's next for Crest Foam? Ooh, that's the hardest question, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's next? Mm-hmm. I, I think 
we were planning to 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 grow bigger. We wanted to buy some land in the new industry area, industry park, mm-hmm. industry park, so that we can be in a bigger space. When you're in a bigger space, you produce more. You know, mattresses are bulky, and we mm-hmm. we get a, a better machine at better machines. You know, to expand mm-hmm. our our business. Yes, I think we also want to to expand the product range, right? So if you think about um, form and and, and in in the different forms that it comes through, you have form, you have sofas, you know, you've got all sorts of applications where you can really, you know, apply the form. So I think we want to to see how we can have that product expansion and then obviously the geographical expansion. We still have a lot of work in Uganda. We haven't... um, fully exploited uh, the Ugandan mm-hmm. opportunity. So we feel that for us, that is part of, of strengthening our core business. Mm-hmm. So we want to strengthen the core and then use that strength to help us, you know, start going into other business opportunities. We also would like to diversify. I think it's really important um, not to put all your eggs in one basket. And we do have, you know, quite a bit of real estate that we need to develop. So we have an eye on, you know, what are some of the interesting things we already have a commercial building in the city center, but we're not really necessarily looking to add to that class. But what we could do with the, the properties we have, I think it's going to be something that will occupy us for the next, at least the next decade. So, yeah, so diversification, I think, will be on the table uh, more and more this in the next 10 years. Awesome. So, Ms. Petra, you have no intention of retiring anytime soon. <laughs> I thought I was retired. <laughs> I need to go to work every day, every day. Myself fit and meet people and, you know, walk around. Because when you retire and sit at home, what happens? What next? (laughs) Really, I don't do much. I don't do much. I'm always around. Well, I beg to differ. She actually does a lot of work and she's there from 8 o'clock till 5 p.m. So she works full hours. (laughs) But we we are very grateful that she's able to to be there and and actually to you know really give us a lot of the guidance um based on the the knowledge that she has gained over the years right. and also for the customers that have known us and been with us for a long time they're always right. happy when they interact with her as well as our suppliers so we're very fortunate that she's you know in relatively good health and is able to give us you know the support that she's able to to give us on a day-to-day basis Thank you, ladies, so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Thank you. That was Petra Katiba and Jocelyn Katiba of Crest Foam. What an awesome duo. There were so many lessons in this story. Here are three things that stood out to me. On succession, knowing when to hand over, how to hand over, and when to take over. On how to survive business loss, Focus on what you can do, not on what you've lost. And on building a business that would last beyond you, size matters. And how you position yourself is important. Formalize that business and implement good corporate governance. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. This will help us greatly. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.